Welcome to Episode 7 of The Kentucky Lawyer. I'm Brad Clark, a criminal defense and DUI lawyer based in Lexington, Kentucky. Every month, I interview a different Kentucky attorney about how they got started, what's going on in their practice, and how they plan to stay on top in the ever-competitive practice of law. Each episode is submitted for approval for one hour of Kentucky CLE credit absolutely for free. Details are available at kylawshow.com. Today, I'm interviewing Chuck Cassis of Goldberg Simpson. Chuck is the managing partner in Goldberg, and his practice primarily includes tort litigation and defense, commercial and business litigation, and insurance coverage matters. Chuck has experience as a trial lawyer in both state and federal courts in many types of civil litigation, including the defense of premises, transportation, automobile, construction, product, and environmental liability claims. He also handles complex coverage and compliance matters for various insurance clients. He is former board chairman of the UK College of Law Alumni Association, the Ronald McDonald's Charities of Kentuckiana, and various local YMCAs. Here's my interview with Chuck. Okay, Chuck. So tell us about your practice and, and how you got started. Well, my practice involves defense litigation generally, mostly done for insurance companies who retain us to represent commercial insureds or businesses that are sued for various reasons mostly torts, uh, and we do have a portion of the practice that is reserved for coverage and compliance work where we actually represent insurance companies either against claimants or their own insureds. Okay, great. And uh, what's the name of the firm you're at again? We, our firm is Goldberg Simpson LLC. We have our main offices in Prospect, Kentucky, 9301 Dayflower Street. We have a satellite office in Frankfort, Kentucky, and we have a satellite office in Jeffersonville, Indiana. So you guys practice, I guess, where does your practice geographically find you mostly? We are all across the state, Eastern, Western, and Central Kentucky, uh, which includes Northern Kentucky, Cincinnati area. And we also have most of what I would call the lower half of Southern Indiana. Okay, great. Um, so tell me a little bit about how you got started. Um, have you always practiced defense litigation? And, and what was your path to where you got now? Well, you know, I grew up with the law. My father was an attorney at one of the big firms. Uh, so I went to law school. I clerked during law school uh, at this firm. And I've been here for a total of 32 years, if you can believe that. 30 years as a lawyer, two years as a clerk. So I was working for a gentleman during my clerkship uh, who took me on uh, here in 1990, and very shortly thereafter, he retired. So I sort of was the only person working with him, so I took over his practice, and I grew that practice from you know whatever he had to whatever it is now. Currently, we have in our department uh, six lawyers, Two para, three paralegals and two administrative assistants. Our firm consists of 30 lawyers. We'd like to consider ourselves a full service operation, but uh, 30 lawyers is really what I would consider in Kentucky's market a mid-sized firm. So we have one or two people in most significant practice areas, estate planning, construction, bankruptcy, creditors' rights, business litigation, uh, our largest group is family law, but that's not what, what my specialty is. Wow, that's interesting. Um, definitely, definitely an interesting dynamic there. We've got all those groups together. Um, what's, what's one thing you wish you'd known when you began your career that you've learned since then? Well, you know, law school doesn't teach you to be a litigator. In law school, you learn a lot of theory, uh, a lot of case opinions, uh, and rules. What you don't learn in law school is how to apply those practically and how it actually works in court or in the real litigation scenario. The, that is one of the biggest things that you know, I wish I knew because I would probably have experienced some other things one of the best ways to learn litigation is to actually go watch it. And I would tell people that clerked for me early on, 
go over to the courthouse, instead of researching some case in a book for three hours, walk over to the courthouse and sit in a trial, sit in a hearing and watch the lawyers work, because that's the practical application of everything that you're not doing here in the office. Litigators actually are in court trying cases, representing clients in real time. That's not something you learn in a library or out of a book. So, you know, go second chair a trial or watch something. Uh, that's probably something that most young people don't know when they're going through law school. Absolutely. I would say it was definitely my experience that, you know, law school teaches you, like you said, a lot of things, but that practical experience is you, you can't learn that anywhere else. And, you know, even, even still now I'm 12 years into my career, I find every year there's more that I know that I don't know than I, than I, what I thought before. Um, do you get the opportunity to try a lot of cases? Well, that's, it's the era of the trial has, has, I'm not saying it's lost, but it is coming to an end, in my opinion. You know, in Jefferson County, you're in Fayette County, correct? Correct. I don't know. The statistics in Jefferson County at this time, 97% of filed cases do not reach trial. Only 3%, sometimes it's low as two and a half, actually go to a trial. As you know, most cases now are mediated or resolved informally. Uh, there's arbitrations, but the trial has become a dinosaur and very few young people in the practice in my last 10 years get actually to see a trial or have actual trial experience as a base. So, you know, that is, that is, I think that era is, unless it's a very unique case or a very complex case uh, that can't be settled informally, those are very few cases that will be tried. Why do you think that is? Why do you think the trial has kind of gone the way, you know, by the wayside? Number one, it's extremely expensive, especially for companies that are paying their lawyers by the hour. Number two, the court dockets, especially after the pandemic, are literally too crowded. The number of lawyers coming out of law school on an annual basis and the number of cases that are filed on a daily basis, both of which we have statistics to see, are insurmountably more significant than they were 10, 15, 20 years ago. So, and the pandemic actually has created a monster sometimes because we, are, we didn't see a trial for almost two years in Jefferson County. I'm sure Fayette, are you back to in-person yet? We are scheduled to go back July 1 in district court and July 15th in circuit court. And I'm sure that criminal is gonna take priority because they have a right to a speedy trial. Civil is on the back burner. So let's say two years has gone by without any civil trials. The dockets, and, and that doesn't mean people aren't still filing cases. Cases on the CNS that I see every night at seven o'clock, Fayette County is getting just as many as Jefferson, if not more. The case filings have not stopped, but the trials have. So you, the, the courts are going to be forcing people to use alternative dispute resolution, whether what they want to or not, or else they're going to see a trial three, four years from now. Right. Do you think we'll ever get caught back up or is this just going to be a structural change? I think you're going to have a structural change. And, and what the COVID pandemic did is, and I know that you're probably going to ask the question about technology later, but you're going to maybe get some, some traction because of the technological advancements that happened during the pandemic. The Zoom depositions, the no in-person court, it's much more efficient to do motion hour by Zoom, okay? Before, even in Fayette, when I'd go on Friday, you'd sit through maybe an hour and a half of stuff. It's much quicker. They go a lot quicker, but they're assigning hearing dates and things down the road that lawyers, you know, may not want to wait for. So they're willing to resolve their cases quicker. Uh, in the eastern part of the state, they're sort of getting back to in-person stuff. And they've told us that motion hour is going to be motion hour in Pike Circuit Court or, or you know, 
in Hazard or wherever you're going to go because they don't like the technological piece. I think they're going to have to actually conform over the next year or so to, to implement that or, or they're going to get really clogged up. Yeah, no, I think that that's definitely a good point. I think we all realized, you know, just how much inefficiency there was in the way that we were practicing. And now that we've gotten a glimpse of what it could be, I think that lawyers are really going to push back against the judges that aren't willing to, um, you know, accommodate us. And so let's, let's get to the technical technological question. Um, how has the adoption of zoom and remote depositions changed your practice? How else has it changed? Well, let's start with, you know, the zoom hearings, and depositions. There's pros and cons to all of this. The young people in the office, you know, on a typical day, usually pre-COVID, a person could drive to Paducah for three hours, cover a hearing that lasted an hour, and drive home. That's a pretty much a full day. Mm -hmm. That seven-hour day has been reduced to 30 minutes on Zoom from your desk. So it is much more efficient for the client and the court, but the big firms that have multiple associates that used to bill those time and bill those hours is gonna lose the ability to do that. So it's gonna change the way you have to practice internally inside of a firm. The young people love the what they used to call the windshield time. Uh, but that's sort of gone away with the advent of the Zoom hearing. Depositions, and again, it's more convenient and more cost-effective, don't get me wrong, but it does change the way you look at it from a business model of a law firm, the traditional law firm model. You're gonna get less billable hours out of that court appearance than you did pre-COVID. Let's talk depositions, because that's a, there's pros and cons to that. While it is more convenient, more cost-effective and cuts down on the travel, everyone can be at a different place on the TV at once. There are, there are cons to that because you cannot really prep your people like you used to in person. And when I would take a deposition, the primary purpose wasn't the questions I was asking. The primary purpose was to evaluate the credibility of that person in case I did have to go to a trial or a hearing. What you can't see on the Zoom depot is the what they do on the breaks, if they're fidgeting under the table, if they're sweating profusely uh, in the back of their neck, things that you would normally observe in face-to-face -face contact. You can't take a break and sidebar your witness. You know, people used to call that woodshedding if they were giving the wrong answers in adverse to the prep you gave them two days ago, you could say, hey, we need a break and you could square them away. You lose the ability to do that. Uh, and you lose some control over the deposition and the pace because everything's faster and sometimes there's overlap when you're not there with everyone else. We had a situation the other day, I would call it the multitasking problem we prepped a person, had him all ready to go in a construction defect case. He gets on the Zoom, and during his deposition, he's laying tile in a bathroom. <laughs> Obviously not focusing on the questions that are being asked, he's laying tile and giving very terrible answers. So again, the face-to-face -face contact, the evaluation of the credibility, and the control of your own witness, I think, is a downside to the Zoom deposition. So how, how do you see all this shaking out? You know, now, we talked about now that we've had a taste of this, um, where do you see us, you know, 10 years down the road, five years down the road, who's gonna win? I mean, because we've got these different stakeholders, as you mentioned, the big firms that need their billable hours, <clears throat> obviously are gonna be hesitant to do this. I think a lot of judges feel like it's inefficient or it loses a sense of decorum when you have you know, motion hour, particularly with, you know, consumer or, you know, lay people clients. Uh, but then on the other side of it, you have a whole lot of lawyers like me who this is, you know, you know, we work with flat fees and even people that have a large volume that this has been, you know, a total game changer for that are going to be wanting to kind of 
continue this, you know, remote work as much as as much as is, you know, ethically possible and fair to the clients. And also, you know, you have the the individual stakeholders, the clients themselves, the amount of time they save. So where do you see this shaking out five, 10 years down the line? I think it's going to lean to the side of the, it's more convenient, more cost effective. Therefore, we're going to use technology. Don't get me wrong. I'm just telling you that there is downside to it in certain applications. For example, I used to love as an in-court litigator getting FaceTime with the judge. When I say FaceTime and walk up, you talk, he sees you there. There's a little bit more personal interaction. There's also personal interaction with attorneys. After motion hour, you could find another lawyer that you've got a case with and have a sidebar about that case and, and do what I call politicking. Yep. There's less politicking in the digital age than there was when everybody was at the courthouse standing in the hallway. So I guess the traditional model of a litigator will have to change with technology. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I, and, I, and I hope that's right. I mean, I, you know, my practice is a little bit different in that, you know, we, if we need to reschedule something, we have to show up at a motion hour and both sides and we have to tell the judge, this is why we're rescheduling it. And this is to win. And like, uh, that's the vast majority of what I do, quite frankly, is continue things, whether it be because we're waiting on discovery or we're still in negotiations. And any way that we can reduce that, I, I think is good. Now, I, there's obviously, you know, in the, I, I guess the layperson, consumer, individual side of the law, you know, your family law practice, your criminal law practice, and I guess on the plaintiff side, um, you know, there's the, the same I issue with the clients. I mean, being able, you know, the amount of time that we can save them. So I, I think that ultimately, it's going to take a while for this to shake out. I think that you know, I've already thought and I've already talked to some people like, are there going to be judicial candidates that run on the platform of bring Zoom back? Is that going to be something that's, you know, probably? Yeah, I think so, too, because there are a lot of those stakeholders, a lot of those, you know, particularly people that bill flat or people that, you know, have a volume practice that it's just been such a game changer for. And I think that ultimately what we need to be looking at is, is what's best for the clients. You know, that's ultimately who we serve. And in um, the case of those people that bill hourly, I mean, paying less is best for them to some extent. I mean, you know, if if we're so, I guess, um, you know, if it has a deleterious effect on the pro on the product on the on the you know the quality of the deposition or the ability to have that politicking that you mentioned, then obviously that that can hurt the client too. But I think that you're probably right that when you weigh the weigh it overall, we're on the path, at least, to some increased use of technology. The benefits uh, far outweigh the risks. I assume you, do you do plaintiff's work or defense work or what? I, if I can ask? I'm 100% criminal defense, state and okay. federal court. And that, that's all I do. Technology will win. I think you're absolutely correct. But it comes at a price. That's all I'm saying. There, there is a price to that in the older sector. The younger people will adapt and move on, and that will be the new reality. But for someone like me who's been practicing 30 years, it is a sea change. And I've seen there are several judges in Jefferson County, and I don't know about the Fayette Bar, but there are several judges in Jefferson County that as a result of the whole COVID situation have basically announced they're retired. Right. So we've got vacancies on our circuit and district court bench due to the sea change that has occurred. And those guys that are retiring or my age or older. You also see it, I think we saw it a little bit of glimpse of it earlier with, you know, the switch to e-filing um, or, you know, at least the adoption of the experimental e-filing. Um, I see, you know, there are people that just don't want to learn how to do it, even though it's vastly more efficient. Even if you, you know, even if you're paralegal or your, your secretary, whoever, does it there are people that are resistant to it and i think you know you're right that same cohort that has been slow to adopt e-filing is going to be slow to to adopt you know video court or video depositions what have you um let's switch gears a little bit what advice would you give someone wanting to pursue a career similar to yours well i you know there's probably three things in my mind that would make a litigator, a good litigator. And the first and foremost is 
is hard work. I don't think there's any substitute for hard work. The person that puts in the time and the preparation and the study for his case, his or her case, is probably going to be is probably going to have the advantage over who who does not. So I don't think there's any substitute for hard work, and that comes to the administrative side as well. You know, uh, there's not just the legal side, there's the practice of law, as you probably know. There's a lot of administrative that you have to do that's non-billable. The second thing I would think would be always be prepared, prepared for whatever you're going to do that day or that week. If it's a hearing, if it's a deposition, or if it's a trial, I don't care what it is, but the, again, usually the person that is best prepared and knows their case the best has a distinct advantage over someone who is not. And I guess the last part, which always served me well, I wasn't, you know, the top of my class necessarily, but I knew two things. I knew the rules of civil procedure, and in your case, probably the rules of criminal procedure, right? and the rules of evidence. Because when you're on your feet in the courtroom, those your, your handle on those two things, again, give you a distinct advantage over your opponent. No, I think those are all good points. Um, just to respond a little bit to that, you know, you're talking about the rules of civil procedure. I mean, you're absolutely right. It's a distinct advantage to know the rules of criminal procedure. Not You don't have to know them forward and backward, but if you can say in your mind, well, this is in that chapter, or I know this is the rule, that rule number, that puts you above a unfortunately large number of people, at least in my practice. Yes, I don't. I knew you would say that because I don't, you know, the people that don't have a grasp of the rules really aren't going to be as adept at maneuvering in the courtroom as you. And, and it's especially important, you know, in my practice, we fortunately, or for better or worse, I should say, we do try cases in the criminal side, not as many as you know, they used to back in, you know, the 70s or 80s or even 90s. But um, having those rules of evidence at the top of your head, or at least knowing where to go look and, and a lot of the work that we do is statutory, you know, it's about elements, it's about offenses. And one of the I remember one of the things that my one of my early mentors did for me when I first started out as a public defender is he sat me down and he gave me the statute book. And he said, I want you to spend the next week reading chapter 500 through chapter 532 and outline it like there was going to be a law exam on it. And I did. And it really stuck with me. And to the point where, you know, people will text me or call me and say, Hey, what's the statute for this? Or where is that provision? And I've been extraordinarily lucky to have a, a really good memory. I think that's probably the best thing I've got going for me. I don't have the most mellifluous voice. I am, you know, not the I don't look like I'm straight out of central casting for a lawyer, but I do have a very good memory and an ability to say, oh, you need to look at 431-0731-D, you know, and when someone asks me a question about an expungement or, or what have you. So I, I think that those are all really good points. Um, and I would just echo what you have to say about preparation. You know, I spend, if I have a minute where I'm not putting out fires, the first thing I do is look at my calendar and say, what's the next thing I need to be preparing for? And how can I use this time to be as prepared as I can be? I think you're correct. And I think that one of the best resources, as you indicated a minute ago, is you had an excellent mentor, it sounds like. And that's the same advice that I got from mine is to know those rules and know them better than your opponent. But uh, I think probably one of the best resources that has helped me is people. You know, you can look up something in a book or you can read it on Westlaw or Lexis. But, you know, if you actually have someone that's done it before and you can talk to them about it, that's invaluable as well. No, absolutely. I, I, I think that's right. And one of the things that I find is, you know, it's not just the, sometimes it's not just a subject matter expert that is going to be the best. It may be the person that's the expert on the, on the locality that you're in, on the jurisdiction you're in. And having a wide network of people to be able to reach out to has been invaluable. Absolutely. And I, I'm sure you guys have a, a similar thing on the on the defense side or, you know, I mean, I guess, you know, there are a number of defense organizations. I'm sure you all are collegial and can reach out to each other and say, hey, I've got this issue down in Pineville. 
Um, who, who do I know that practices down there? Maybe you can pick their brain. I think being willing to answer questions for their lawyers and being, you know, and being willing to ask for help when you need it, or I, I think those are invaluable skills um, that for the young lawyer or for any lawyer. I will tell you that the in Kentucky, in the civil side, the plaintiff's bar is much more organized than the defense bar until recently. Early in my career, you know, the defense bar, they compete for some of the same pool of clients. Mm -hmm. So a lot of time early on, they were hesitant to share information and hesitant to get on what I now know is like a listserv right. uh, and answer questions and share information. The plaintiffs were very well organized in Kentucky and did a great job with their listserv. Uh, and the KJA has done an excellent job uh, for that organization. The defense team has finally gotten their act together in the last 10 years and now is fairly well the same way. But it didn't used to be that way on the defense side. That's what I would call. And again, when I talk about recently, I'm talking about the span of my career, the last decade or so the defense bar has become much more organized. And the, and the organizations on our civil side, there's the Kentucky Defense Council. Mm -hmm. uh, and then nationally, there's the Defense Research Institute, which is known as DRI. Uh, those are organizations that have uh, become a little more active in years recent. Yeah, and I think that's great. You know, on the criminal side, you know, we have the Kentucky Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, but a resource that I reach out to is the local public defender's office because they're the people that are in there doing 50 cases a week. And, you know, if I want to get insight into what's this judge like, what's this prosecutor like, what's, you know, what's local practice like, it's been really, really, been really, really fortunate to have a lot of great and gracious public defenders that are willing to help. And so I would just, anybody that is practicing criminal defense, I think knows this, but if, if you ever do have a question like that, most of the public defenders are really a really great resource. Um, what's some, of one the, some of the best people that have ever worked for me came from the PD's office because they were used to being in court. They weren't scared of going into court. They weren't you know, they knew the judges, uh, those, the, the PD's office and people that do criminal defense are very well equipped to switch to the civil side if they want to. A lot of people though, like the criminal side, it's, it's more, uh, I'm not saying it's more action, but it's more of a on your feet, hour to hour, day to day, moving and shaking. The civil game and the civil wheel turns more slowly. And, you know, if you're an adrenaline junkie and you want to be in there every, every day, sometimes the civil arena doesn't provide you with that. So I've had a couple of people that have come from the PD's office or, or from the criminal defense arena and says, hey, you know, this isn't fast enough for me. I got to get back to where the action is. But, you know, they've been some of the best technicians I've ever worked with. Yeah, no, I, a lot of a lot of good lawyers start out there or, or prosecutors, too. I mean, they get the similar experience on the other side. I, um, I, I can relate to what you're talking about as far as the adrenaline junkie. Like I was a PD for six years and then slowed down and took appointed work on death penalty cases for a couple of years. And I just, I missed the speed of being in the courtroom because I would have, you know, four or five cases at a time. And, you know, they would go on for years. And, you know, when we would have a trial, you know, they, they would be a month, six weeks long or whatever, they would be big complex trials. But I missed that kind of pace of being in the, in the courtroom or, and even now in private practice, you know, I have a pretty high caseload for a private practice criminal defense attorney, but it's a fraction of what I had as a public defender. And, and some days I miss that politicking you're talking about of you know being in court having 32 cases on in one day sentencing 11 people and there's just a rush to like really like going in there and doing a great job for those clients and you know being able to stand up at the end of the day and you're exhausted because you're mentally taxed it's it's almost like being in trial though i think that there's nothing quite as taxing as being on and like like you have to be in trial but those days i do fondly remember them i'm not sure that i want to go back to them 
but I, there certainly is an element of that. Um, what's one common myth about civil defense work that you want to debunk or dispel? Well, you know, civil defense, I'm going to narrow my comments to what I would call the insurance arena, because there's sure. a lot of different civil defense. But, uh, you know, from my standpoint, uh, contrary to what you see on television every night, the, you know, the insurance company is not always the evil emperor. Right. You know, they're a company just like any other company for profit. They're trying to protect their insureds, manage the risk, reduce the risk and have money, have your premiums well spent. If they did not do that on a daily basis, your and my premiums for auto insurance, home insurance, whatever kind of insurance you buy would be astronomical. And the way they keep those premiums down to the general public is by doing what they do on a daily basis. Now, they don't always get it right. But in Kentucky, there's no cause of action for making a mistake in that regard. So, you know, a lot of people say, and you see on TV, you know, the insurance company is this evil organization with all these bad things in mind. That's not always the case. Yeah, no, I think that's well-founded and, you know, I guess the way I relate to that is there are some defense lawyers that would, would tell you that, you know, the government is the same way, right? The <laughs> government is bad and, you know, and then they do make mistakes and that's why, you know, we're here is to help with that process, you know? Um, but, uh, I, you know, I've definitely over my career, um, I guess, warmed to many, you know, police officers and prosecutors and, you know, creating, you know, those, relationships. And that's, that's a big difference, I think, in the criminal and the civil side is, you know, we, it, it's not just a, you know, a one turn game, it's, you know, we're going to be back together working on cases. Again, you know, me and the prosecutor, we it's not scorched earth, it can't be because you're going to have to go back, you may have a good case today, but you're going to have to go back to him with a bad case tomorrow. And if you can't, you know, create relationships by and large for all your clients, then you're doing a disservice to more clients than you are. And, and that's not to say that you shouldn't be a zealous advocate in each and every case, but there are more diplomatic ways um, to approach the situation. And, and I think that, you know, one of the things that I hear from people that have pr that practice both or have practiced both the civil and criminal side is that the criminal side is actually more collegial than the civil side. Um, and, probably because of that repeated uh, negotiation that we have to go through. Very similar to your practice, different set of facts and different case, but the same group of lawyers practicing on the civil side. You, you're going to have to see them again sooner or later. So there has to be some degree of collegiality or else you're not going to survive in that, uh, in that world very long. Yeah. And I, if I could go back, you know, to kind of answer my own question that I posed to you and talk to myself when I was, you know, fresh out of law school, I would, I would really, really drive that home that, you know, it's not, you can't, number one, you can't win every case, no matter how smart you are, or how hard you work, they're going to be, they're going to be ones that you need to resolve. And number two, in order to do that, you have to remember that opposing counsel is a, is a person and you have to treat them with respect and you have to treat them with dignity, even if you don't agree with, you know, what, what they're currently pursuing. I often think about it as though I'm almost a mediator between my client and the government. You know, my client wants one thing, the government wants another. And my job is really to help them find a resolution most of the time. Now, that's not to say that sometimes it, there can't be a resolution in criminal, you know, you know, if, if it's a, especially high profile case, if it's an especially uh, if the client has immigration issues that are going to lead to deportation, um, you know, then you you have to go in fully, you know, guns blazing almost, you know, and if uh, but in almost every other circumstance, trying to be collaborative, trying to find a solution with opposing counsel, I think, has made me a better lawyer rather than uh, a worse one. Completely agree. You get more bees with honey than you do swatting them away. And, and it just doesn't, on a long-term basis, you're going to find that that's really not 
a good start to a career. If you wanna have a tenured career with respect of your colleagues, you're gonna to have to treat everyone with respect. And you're right, not every case is a winner. And not only is not every case a winner, the cases you think that are winners, the jury can do something absolutely in opposite to. So if I could predict, <laughs> Brad, if I could predict what juries would do in a civil case every time, I wouldn't be on this podcast. <laughs> I'd probably be in Laguna Beach and on a surfboard somewhere. That's, that sounds pretty nice. But yeah, and, and like you said, you know, I always tell my clients that they may have some issue, there may be some issue with the case that, you know, uh, something wasn't done correctly and that they want us to litigate. But I always tell them, let's start with the sugar. And then if we have to, we'll go to the salt, you know, and try to be collaborative. And, and by and large, the prosecutors I work with in, in both state and federal court have, you know, that same perspective, that same collaborative perspective. And so I really respect that and, and attorneys. Um, what are some of the issues that you are researching or litigating the most right now? What are hot topics in insurance defense? Well, it, right now, you know, I take a few big cases on the tort side. If there's a, for example, a big fire loss or a construction loss, uh, those cases tend to last a long time. Uh, whether it be for appeals or um, whether they ask for discretionary review in the Supreme Court. The longest case I've got uh, in the tort side is probably eight or nine years old. On the coverage side, which is uh, the insurance company has a dispute with a claimant or its own insured about whether the losses are covered under the policy those can be even more complicated and last longer, uh, especially if they're disputes between insurance companies. So some of what I do is insurance company versus insurance company. And, you know, I think the, the oldest case I have now is like 16 years old. So, and we're, we're in the court, of, we're in the back for discretionary review a second time. So, um, because there's not a lot of law in Kentucky on those types of coverage disputes. There's a lot of good law in Kentucky on other things, but not in the insurance world. You look to other states, sometimes the Sixth Circuit, to find law that you need. And a lot of times there are issues of first impression. So those are what my focus is. Um, so that's that's what... I'm doing the most of right now, but that's uncommon. I don't think, I don't think that answer is going to be given to you by many other podcasters because what I do is very narrow. Yeah. Why do you think that is that that area of law hasn't been as well developed in Kentucky as it might've been in other States? I think the Kentucky court of appeals, while the, while the, while the, while the state courts, uh, you get what you get. If it goes to the Court of Appeals, the Court of Appeals in Kentucky is uh, partial to the insured. They may try to find coverage whenever possible. The federal courts are a little more generous to the carriers. Uh, so you've got a conflict sometimes between state law and what a federal court has done in the Sixth Circuit. Um, that's why the Supreme Court might say, hey, We've got some conflicting authority here. We might need to take another look at this at a different level. Um, but most judges in state court, because the summary judgment standard is different, really favor like the Court of Appeals in finding coverage. If someone has a wrongful death claim and the insurance company is saying, look, there's no coverage here because your policy lapsed, a lot of times, the court will go out of its way to find coverage. That's why those cases go up. Yeah, and, and if you asked a criminal defense lawyer, uh, we would say that the Court of Appeals uh, finds a way to make every error in a criminal trial harmless, but that's a... <laughs> <laughs> you got the same issue that I do then. But that's, you know, that's the Court of Appeals is completely different. So you've got a completely different set of eyes looking at everything. And, and analyzing the law, whether it be from Kentucky or other states. 
So a lot of times you end up in a situation in the coverage case of what would a Kentucky court do? Okay, now it's time for our ethical dilemma. Each month, I take a few minutes out of each episode to pose an attorney ethics hypothetical for our guest. These hypotheticals are based on Kentucky bar opinions and real NPRE questions. Each segment lasts about 15 minutes or 0.25 hours. Listen to all 12 monthly episodes of our podcast in a year and you walk away with enough continuing education and ethics credits for that year. Today's hypothetical has to do with the duty to report ethical violations by other lawyers and judges. Chuck, are you ready? Certainly. All right. This comes from Kentucky Bar Association Ethics Opinion KBAE-430, and that came out January 16th of 2010. And so the first question, and the probably most complex, we're going to take it apart here in a second, is under what circumstances do Supreme Court Rule 8.3 impose a duty to report professional misconduct of others? So when do we have the duty to report others, Chuck? Well, let's start with the premise that a lawyer does not have a duty to report every known violation of the rules. But because attorneys are self-regulated, meaning they regulate their own profession, you have to know, and know, we'll probably talk about a definition of know, that a lawyer has violated the rules which raises a question as to his honesty, trustworthiness, or fitness as a lawyer. In that situation, you're required to report. So while you don't have to report every known violation, you have to report those that underline the core values of what attorneys do, which is basically being honest, being trustworthy, and being fit to practice law. Right. So um, let's talk about what you just said. When does a lawyer know that a violation has occurred? What is what is the standard for knowledge in this? this well, it's, I, I'm pretty sure it's defined in the terminology in the rules proceeding, but you have to have actual knowledge that it can be inferred. So you have to have a knowledge, which is an objective standard. Mere suspicion is insufficient. You can't just suspect something. You have to have actual knowledge that would cause you to believe that a reasonable lawyer under the same circumstances would know that the conduct had occurred. And you don't have a duty to investigate necessarily, but if you have knowledge that's reasonable under the circumstances, that triggers the reporting requirement. Right. And, and as you said, it's an objective one. And, uh, you know, it's um, it's not like the famous George Costanza line from Seinfeld. Jerry, it's not a lie if you believe it. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> it is it is an objective standard. And so we, we looked at the you know totality of the circumstances as to whether or not, as you said, an, a reasonable lawyer would know. Um, OK, um, moving on. Um, what constitutes a substantial question of whether or not someone's violated these rules? Well, what you're talking about here is serious violations. Again, not every violation has to be reported, but examples of things that are are clear. And the same same applies to judges. You know, judges are under the same standard. So, you know, theft, conversion, abandonment of a client, credit card fraud or perjury, tampering with evidence, for example, or commingling of funds from a client. Those are things that are serious violations. And that that list is not an exclusive list. You know, if you falsify documents or forge documents, or forge billing statements. Those are all things that trigger the duty to report. Um, so there's that's the subset of what I call serious violations. There's other things that create substantial questions that are not serious violations. For example, a lawyer suffering from an impairment. 
Uh, and that can be, you know, dementia, alcoholism, drug addiction, chemical dependency, or some sort of mental illness. They must also be reported unless there's an exception, and I'm sure we'll talk about exceptions later, but those are non-serious violations in the legal sense, like stealing money or falsifying documents. But if it affects your ability or fitness as a lawyer in other respects is the term they use, those are also reportable instances. Can you think of an example of something that would be a violation of the rules, but you wouldn't have to report? Well, for example, if you, if you don't respond to a discovery request and the judge says you should have, that's technically a violation of your ethical responsibilities in front of the tribunal. But that's not what I would categorize as a serious violation. You didn't steal anybody's money. You didn't forge a document. You didn't manufacture evidence. Mm -hmm. And, and you didn't uh, do something while you were impaired. So while that's a technical violation of the rules, that's not what I would consider a serious violation that would trigger the reporting requirement. Um, does a lawyer have a duty to report conduct unrelated to the practice of law or to judicial duties in the case of a judge? The answer is yes, if it, again, adversely, adversely affects the trustworthiness or fitness as a lawyer or a judge. So you're looking at the judge's fitness for the office. Uh, you know, for example, if you do something personally, uh, you falsify some documents for personal use or, in, or embezzle money from something you're doing personally, you can be disciplined for that because all of those types of things raise questions about your honesty and trustworthiness. And the whole point of this, Brad, is, is you have to understand the whole point of it. Attorneys are self-governing. They self-govern themselves. So we're essence officer to the court and we serve a public interest. So if you're, you're committing a serious violation of fraud or deceit, that's, that's definitely affecting the way attorneys are viewed in the public interest. Yeah, and this is a bigger question, uh, but why do you think it should be that attorneys are self-regulating? Why, why do we deserve that? special privilege? That's a great question. We are officers of the legal system, and we're supposed to maintain and assure that our group and the trial courts maintain the highest standards for the public, because that is the vehicle by which the public can air their grievances. And if the people running that system aren't operating professionally, and under the rules of conduct under which the public expects, the entire thing caves in. I mean, that, that's the whole purpose of the system. Now, we have a KBA, uh, we have an ethics hotline, we have an office of bar counsel, we have chief bar counsel, six deputies, I think. In Jefferson County, we have four ethics members in our district, but they're all lawyers and they govern that organization which governs lawyers. So because we serve the public and because the court system serves the public, the public deserves to have people that are operating at a high standard. And I think just to echo what, what I was hearing you say, it would be difficult for non-lawyers to understand and regulate lawyers, I think. I think that's why it's important that we are self-regulating just because of the difficulty that non-lawyers would have if we had some sort of administrative agency that was, um, you know, staffed and, and the way that like environmental regulation may be done or, you know, any other type of consumer regulation is done. And, it, and you know, they weren't lawyers and we weren't self-regulating. I think that that would lead to um, worse results. Unjust application of the rules in some cases. And not only that, not, 
there are, there are so many exceptions to these rules, Brad, that, that non-lawyers would have to do some digging and research to figure out. For example, there's an exception for privileged information uh, that's client information. You know, you can't report a lawyer if it's going to affect the client. In those situations, you're going to have to wait or delay until that representation runs its course to do so. Uh, so there's, you know, there's certain ethical rules and other legal challenges that only lawyers kind of know about that would require them to do do something like this. And I've experienced that myself in my practice. I've, you know, had another attorney, I can't go into any real detail about this, who approached me and, you know, because he needed advice about a particular criminal investigation that was ongoing about him. And he gave me information that was privileged that would indicate that he may have, you know, violated these rules. But that is, as you said, one of those exceptions. Like I, I as his attorney in an official capacity doing this consultation, um, don't don't have that mandatory disclosure reporting when I'm serving as his counsel and it's privileged information, correct? Correct. And there, yeah, there's a separate rule, I think 1.6 about that, mm-hmm. that confidentiality. And that's, you know, as lawyers, that's a big deal. Right. Um, does a lawyer have a duty to self-report his or own, her own misconduct or that of an associate? Well, <laughs> this is where it gets a little, because I, you know, I've used this rule one time in my entire legal career, and it was probably the most uncomfortable experience I've ever had. Uh, but generally, a lawyer does not have to self-report. Okay, that's not to say a lawyer shouldn't do it. But there's a couple of instances where they, they will be reported. Number one is if you've been disciplined from another state mm-hmm. or you lost your privileges in another state, that's one instance where you're gonna be reported. Number two is if you pled guilty to a felony or if you had a conviction of a crime of some sort, that's another situation where you're going to be reported. I believe it has to be a class A misdemeanor or greater. So oh, is that okay? <laughs> you're you're better versed than me, but I knew that if you're guilty of a felony, you're probably yes in the zone of re- being reported. But but for ex- but but if I know, for example, that my partner falsified documents in a case, okay, I'm going to have to report that unless it either A, affects a client or is confidential information that causes a delay. And, and so that would be true of, of any associate. We would have that duty if they were within the same firm um, to report, um, as you said, and uh, subject to those exceptions. Does a lawyer have a duty to report the misconduct of a suspended or disbarred lawyer? So here's the distinction. A suspended lawyer is still a member of the bar. So the suspended lawyer, even though he's suspended, is subject to the rules of the bar. A disbarred lawyer is not, meaning a disbarred lawyer is technically no longer a lawyer. So they're not subject to the rules. However, let's go back to the suspended lawyer. If that suspended lawyer, while he's suspended or otherwise, or after he's reinstated, engages in conduct that we've discussed, even if he's practicing law while he's suspended, if I know that, for example, they suspend somebody for 90 days, but I know that he keeps practicing. The KBA doesn't have the resources, let's say, to monitor that, so I have to report him for the unauthorized practice of law. And why do I have to do that? Because ultimately they're going to apply to be reinstated. But if they know he practiced the whole time, that's one of the considerations the committee will take in his reinstatement application. So. And there was a very interesting Supreme Court opinion on this last week. I don't know if you got the opportunity to read it. I did not. Well, I don't, I don't want to, the show is not about, you know, dragging specific people through the mud. So I'm not going to go into it in too much detail, but there's a, an attorney in Northern Kentucky who was suspended, who 
ostensibly continued to practice during his suspension period and applied for reinstatement. And a large portion of the reason that he was not allowed to be reinstated after his suspension was up was the fact that he did, for most intents and purposes, continue to practice law while he was suspended. And so, um, you know, I think it's, um, it's, it's, we all know this, this is common sense. If you're suspended, don't practice law, but it just shows just how severe the penalty will be if you do uh, go down that path. And I hope that no one listening to this show would ever even consider that, but it has happened and it, they did certainly, you know, suspended him for, or disbarred him as a result. So, yeah. So if you mess up during the suspension, you're looking at a permanent disbarment in Kentucky. But let's talk about disbarred people. Again, the KBA doesn't really have authority over that conduct, but what it does have is it can investigate the unauthorized practice of law and initiate a proceeding for the unauthorized practice of law in Kentucky. That's not necessarily bar counsel that handles that, but it's the, it's the KBA itself and the executive director that would be in charge of whether or not they investigate that. Right. And then, because again, um, the purpose of that is the interests of the public are protected by a non-lawyer practicing law. It's a no-no. Does a prosecutor have any additional response, additional responsibilities of uh, mandatory reporting? You know, for known violations, the answer is yes. If you're prosecuting a member of the KBA for again a guilty plea or conviction in a felony situation, yes prosecutors should report that. And it's a mandatory reporting. If you have a plea of guilty or a conviction, again, I think you said it's a class A or above. That's my recollection, unless they've changed it. Yeah. So once the plea has been made or the judgment has been entered, the reporting has to be made. Okay. Well, I think that's enough for ethics for this week. I think people got their 15 minutes. As you said, before we started, this is a complex question and uh, there's a lot to it but i think that it's helpful because this is a question that i think comes up unfortunately at least sometimes in a lawyer's career as you said it came up once for you and um i think it's important that our, our listeners you know know what the kind of contours of this issue are so i'm going to close out with just a couple more questions chuck um if you could step into my shoes what would you have asked yourself that i didn't A great question. Maybe what do you do when you're not being a lawyer? Yeah, let's talk about that. What, what do you do when you're not being a lawyer? Surf? Well, you know, <laughs> apparently I think you're the, a surfer. Well, the, no, the law is a stressful profession as it is. And I think there's a lot of stress that you carry with you during the day. So what I like to do is I like to get outside and exercise. Mm -hmm. uh, mostly in the mornings, I do it just to get my head clear, but I'm not uh, averse to doing it in the afternoon after a long day as well. So it sort of gives me a release. I think the profession's stressful enough as it is. And I think that's why you see a lot of lawyers that have substance abuse problems or other issues that have to be dealt with by KLAP. And that's another thing that the KBA has uh, increased its participation in, in, in the years in the past. So uh, I like to get out and do stuff that's not law. I don't sit in the office all day and all night and think about it. I think that you have to have a work-life balance. And if you don't have that right work-life balance, this is a tough job to do 24-7. No, there are definitely diminishing returns. You know, I, I talk to you know friends of mine that work at big firms and they talk about working 60, 70, sometimes more hours a week. And I, I'll be honest, I've got about five good hours a day and, and then <laughs> Well, what you try to achieve, what you try to achieve over your career, you learn, you know, how much you can actually give during the day. And once you reach that point, if you don't really take some time for yourself, you're not going to be as effective for those clients the next day and the next day and the next day. Absolutely. So you're not only doing it for yourself, you're doing it for your client base, because I think you're going to give better service to those clients if you feel better about yourself. 
No, I, I think that's a great point. And I think that's a good place to, to leave off. Chuck, I'd really like to thank you for joining us. This has been a great discussion. I hope our listeners enjoy it. Um, is there anywhere uh, people can connect with you online or anything you want to promote, any projects, uh, do you, are you speaking engagements, anything like that coming up? No, we, we, uh, we have our GoldbergSimpson.com as our website. We have a contact link. I can be contacted through that link or directly by my email, which is on the site. Uh, we also have a Facebook page. Uh, we had a big event last Tuesday night. Uh, a lot of pictures, a lot of comments were on there from uh, this week. So those are two ways you can connect with us. And, uh, you know, we're always available to talk with anyone that needs to talk. All right. Well, thank you again. Thank you. That's all the time we have for this episode. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have any questions about claiming your CLE, go to kylawshow.com. We'll be back next month with another episode of The Kentucky Lawyer. Thank you for listening. I'm Brad Clark. We'll see you soon.